Well, we uh, sat here together, Lord, and just sang about your grace and the marvel of it. And, uh, and I guess experiencing it is so phenomenal that words, uh, our song wasn't adequate, our words weren't complete. We should have said more, should have sung louder. Uh, you're just phenomenal. And we pray for a movement of the Spirit of God upon us today. And that you would uh, communicate truth to us uh, that would be beyond ourselves and help us to know uh, what you're trying to tell us because we really want to know truth. So we give ourselves to you today uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Matthew chapter 5 verse 43. One of the, uh, I come uh, often and I'm, I'm there this morning uh, in where I am in all of this. I come this morning uh, wishing I didn't have to preach. Not that I don't have anything to say and not that I don't like to preach and not that I don't want to preach. But I wish that uh, <clears throat> really I could just uh, maybe sit down one-on-one -on -one with you and just uh, talk this out. Uh, just uh, share. Preaching has the idea sometimes of a bawling out or finger in your face or, you know, we yell when we preach and Therefore, you get the idea that I'm just scolding you or whatever. Uh, and that's not the intent. That never is the intent. Never want to do that. That's never in my heart. So, this kind of sermon, this kind of truth, this kind, what we're dealing with today is so radical. Ladies and gentlemen, this is off the wall. This is, uh, this is the kind of thing you kind of shake your head and say, should I say that? Is this really true? Uh, because it's so, it's so, again, radical. It's the kind of thing, what we're going to talk about this morning is like, uh, it would be like telling a four-year-old to act like a 30-year-old. And it, it just isn't going to happen. Because he's incapable of it. It would be like, uh, uh, it would be like telling a dog, don't bark. I mean, the dog's going to bark. Why? He's a dog. <laughs> He's just incapable of not barking. It's just, you know, that... It would be like looking at me and say, Manly, uh, why don't you go into the Olympics and win the weightlifting contest? <laughs> Get a gold medal. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> See, it's that kind of deal. Th this is so radical. It, I know that you're going to look at it, and as I do, and just shake my head and say, this is, this is ridiculous. This, is, this truth is absolutely ridiculous and therefore we have to constantly come back to the premise of the Sermon on the Mount because if you don't get the premise then you will go away discouraged you will go away saying impossible you will go away saying ideal you will go away saying it's rules I don't know what you'll go away but you'll go away not grasping the truth of, of, the, of what he's saying and all the Sermon on the Mount has to be understood in light of this premise now the premise, he, and, and we go over this over and over again, and we're going over it again, is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So he starts the Sermon on the Mount saying, grasp this, and then he launches into this, oh, let me explain the premise now, and he gives you these illustrations. So the premise is what? 
you are poor in spirit, which is absolutely helpless. Here you are, absolutely helpless. If you don't embrace your helplessness, if you don't think you're helpless, then the Sermon on the Mount won't make any sense to you. But it's in embracing your helplessness, your poverty in spirit. Again, if I take a knife and slice you down the middle and go to the inner core of your being, what do I find there? Absolutely nothing. You are without resource. You are helpless. In the core issue of your life, what produces you, what makes you who you are, what fulfills the dream for which you were created, what literally accomplishes the destiny of your life. You have no ability at all, no resource at all to pull that off. Now you're not that way because you've sinned, although you have sinned, but you're that way, you've sinned because you're that way. So sin didn't create the helplessness. The helplessness is there. And the reason the helplessness is there is because God created you that way. See, that's the exciting thing about it. That this is not, oh brother, this is not, oh my, this is not hopelessness. This is, oh, the destiny of God for my life. That I was created helpless, so what? So that he could come in all that he is and literally merge in my life. So that who I am and who he is could get together and this new thing, new creature, this kingdom person, he calls it the kingdom. The kingdom person would literally come into being. That's his dream. Now, of course, all of sin revolves around the idea that I won't embrace my helplessness. And if I don't embrace my helplessness, then I act as if I'm not helpless when I really am helpless. And then I'm constantly into that which is failure. So the answer to everything is what? I'm going to embrace my helplessness. Not in a moment of time, not say, okay, I'm helpless, and then move on. No, I'm going to live in my helplessness. See, I'm going to set up the boundary around my helplessness, and I'm never going to get out of it. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to live in it. I'm going to constantly be aware of it. I'm going to never get cocky. I'm never say, oh, I can handle this. No, you can't. No, you can't. See, I'm going to live in my helplessness. And if I live there, that sets the stage, that triggers it, that is the catalyst, that is the, what's the word? That opens the door for all of the resource of who he is, his nature to begin to infiltrate my life. And then this union takes place, this union between you and Jesus, this, this oneness, this new creature thing. And suddenly all the resource you've ever needed in all your life is yours and yet it isn't yours at all, it's him and he is the resource, and you're just clinging. And again, it's like the glove and the hand. See, the glove is absolutely helpless, does absolutely nothing, but the hand comes, fills the glove, and suddenly the glove takes on life. Well, it's not its life. The glove begins to move. Well, it doesn't really move. Well, it is moving. Well, it's in the middle of everything. Well, it does no work. Well, it does all the work, and yet it does nothing. That's this. Now, that's the premise. And so the premise absolutely becomes essential in understanding. Now, in light of that, he gives six illustrations of this thing, how this works. And we're we're dealing with the last one, which is verse 43, begins at verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy... And pray for those who, who spitefully use you and persecute you. You have heard that it was said, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now you'll notice he says you have heard. He didn't say it is written. And the reason for that is because this is never found in the scriptures. That is this statement. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See that's never in the Bible. And you might want to correct me because it's right here. (laughs) See in their culture this had become acceptable. In other words, in Jesus' day, what was the acceptable standard for life experience? What was the acceptable standard? If you meant that standard, you were good. You were down at the church. We'd whack you on the back. Hey, he's, all right. he's, he, he's a great guy. Oh, he's a fine Christian. He's the, he's the, he's the, and hey, we would congratulate you if you meant this standard. This was their standard. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, where did they get that? They did not get it out of the scripture. And two Sundays ago, we spent a whole session just on that. They left off, well, they got that statement from, if you look at your notes, Leviticus 19.18. And the statement is, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, they took that and ended up with, you shall love your neighbor Hate your enemy. Now, you note they did two things to it. They left as yourself off. It isn't that they didn't know that. They did know that. In fact, they quoted it every Sabbath day together. As yourself. Love your neighbor. As yourself. They quoted it all the time. But they left it off. So it isn't that they didn't know it. But see, we do that all the time. We read the Bible. I read what it said. But hey... That's not the standard by which I live. I know the Bible says that, but I live another way. See, that's exactly what they did. They took the scriptures and shaped it the way they wanted it. And that isn't, everybody knows, you can't do that. Guys, that isn't right. That will not produce great living. That's not what we're talking about. And then they added, they took the, left the statement as yourself off, and then they added, hate your enemy. Well, it doesn't say that. But that's what they added. Why? Because that's the way they wanted to be. So this was culturally accepted in their hour. This is the way they wanted to live. Now, if you accept the fact that I can love my neighbor and hate my enemy, there comes a theological issue immediately. What's the issue? Well, who's my neighbor? See, it's boundary language. Do you see that? It's boundary language. In other words, I'm setting up a boundary. And if you're within the boundary of my, of my dictation, then I will love you. If you're outside the boundary, then I don't have to love you. What's the boundary? You're my neighbor. If you're my neighbor, then you're inside the boundary of my love. Anybody who's not my neighbor is outside the boundary. So immediately there became the big argument, which they did. You can find it in several places where it pops up in the ministry of Jesus, where they're arguing about, well, who's my neighbor? (laughs) Which is a big debate. For instance, this lawyer came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus quoted him, love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your might, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth, and your neighbor as yourself. And immediately the guy looked him in the eye, Jesus in the eye, and said, hey, who's my neighbor? Because nobody's figured that out yet. So Jesus told the story that you know, which is the story of the Good Samaritan, (coughs) which describes who your neighbor is. 
And what's the story of the Good Samaritan? Well, this guy, business guy, going on a business trip. Uh, the robbers get him, beat him half to death, strip him naked, and rob him. And he has nothing left, no money and no clothes. And he's left to die at the side of the road. Along comes a Levite. Now, he, he's the top. And a priest. They're the top. They're the, they're the preachers. They're the, you know, the, the doctors. They're the, they're, the, they're the best of their day. So along comes a Levi, and he looks over and sees the guy who's been beaten nearly half to death and is left to die, and looks at him and says, Oh my, that's too bad. Feel sorry for you, buddy. Uh, hey, wow. But hey, I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm entered to teach a Sunday school class. They're dependent on me. I haven't got time. Maybe after dinner. I'll see you later. And goes on by. The priest, he comes by, looks at the guy, says, Oh my, I've got to preach in about a half hour. I haven't got... And oh, that blood would get all over my suit. I can't. I'm sorry. God bless you. I'll pray for you. Then along comes this Samaritan. Now, maybe you don't know. Who's the Samaritan? He's a half-breed. Is he a Jew? Well, no. Well, yeah. Well, he's half-Jew. He came out of the race that got all mixed up with another race, and they're just, and they betrayed. See, he's worse than a Gentile, people. See, a Gentile, you got Jews, you got Gentiles, but the Samaritan is neither one. He's, yuck. He's, we don't, we don't even walk through his country. We don't want, he, don't let the dust storm blow the dust from their country on us. We don't, they, oh, Samaritan, he, he is, he would be my enemy. And the Samaritan, priest came by, don't have time. Levite came by, don't have time. Priest came by, say, hey, I'll pray for you. Samaritan, half-breed, no good enemy came by. Put salve on his wounds, bound him up, picked him up, took him to the motel, paid for the night, paid for several nights, said, hey, if he needs to stay longer, I'll be on my way back again, I'll stop in and pay for it. And then if you look at your notes, it says, Jesus looked at the guy and said, of which, Luke 10 to 36, of which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And of course, there was only one answer. And he said, he who showed mercy. Well, who's that? The Samaritan. Oh, the half-breed? Yeah. The enemy? Yeah. He was the neighbor? Oh, so if he's the neighbor and you're only going to love the neighbor, guess what? You're going to love your enemy. Do you see how radical that is? In other words, Jesus is saying, you've got this boundary and you're just going to live, you're going to love within your boundary. Who's within your boundary? Oh, the neighbor. I like him. He likes me. Woo! I fix his plumbing. He fix my electric. Woo! Hey, I love you. Hey, we're friends. We're, you are in our clique. Suddenly the clique has enlarged to take the guy who's the furthest away. Who's the guy that's the furthest away out of my boundary? The enemy. 
So now I'm going to love the guy who's furthest away, which was mean. I would love everybody. Everybody, I know there's mean people around. I got it. He raped my daughter. I'm not gonna love him. I know that guy ripped me off. I understand. Every time I'm around him, he's gouging me. I know. Besides that, he's ugly. I don't, I'm not gonna love him. I got it. And to stand up and say, Love your enemy. That's like four-year-old. Be like you're 30 years of age. What? Dog, don't bark. Hey, manly, lift weights. <laughs> Do you see that? This was so radical, ladies and gentlemen. This was so off the wall. This was so out of sight. It's impossible. Which proves his point, right? The Sermon on the Mount. You're helpless, aren't you? <laughs> See, if you're approaching Christianity from the viewpoint, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Don't, don't, please don't. Just go away. It ain't going to work. Well, I'll work on it. I'll do some studying and work on it. <laughs> Forget it. See, if you approach the Christian faith, if you approach this dynamic of being Christian at its heart from the idea of I'll improve, I'll get better, I'll, hey, you're, you're going to miss it, man. You're going to miss it. Well, how, how do you approach this? I'm absolutely helpless and I'm a dog that just has to bark. And somehow I got in the Olympics and I'm supposed to win the weightlifting contest. <laughs> How am I going to do this? You have to be there. And if you're there, you know what will happen? Oh. He will come. He will come. And he will literally merge with you, invade you. Get inside of you, live within you, and in the vibration of his life, in the fullness of his heart, that which is absolutely impossible. You can be a 30-year-old. Woo! Hey, Olympics, here I come. <laughs> okay, okay. If we are to love our neighbors and love our enemies as well, how am I going to pull that off? And what would I be like if I did that? Explain it to me. So he begins in the passage with this explanation of what the standard is. Again, impossible. Again, radical. Again, oh, come on. I know. Now look at the explanation. He says, verse 39, or uh, verse uh, 44. But I say to you, love your enemy. Okay, back up. 
two Sundays ago we went through this, but you need, you need to hear it again. But I say to you. Now the word but is a continuative conjunction. In other words, or, and it's a contrasting conjunction. In other words, he's reaching out, grabbing hold of what was said before, and say, I'm going to contrast. So you have heard it said of old, hate your enemy, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I want to contrast another picture with that. Well, what's the picture he's going to contrast? I say, now I say is a translation of the Greek word lego, L-E-G-O. And both words, I, the subject, and the verb are contained in that one Greek word. So it's lego, I say. But he wasn't satisfied with that. He stuck the word ego, which is the word I, in there also. So it literally says, but I, I say to you. So the example, the explanation for loving your enemy is what? Jesus. So if you want to say, what does it mean to love your enemy? How does that look? Oh, that's easy. It looks exactly like Jesus. So would you agree with me that the call of Christianity is to be exactly like Jesus? Amen. That Jesus is the standard. That Jesus is the, Jesus is the essence. Jesus is not the striving ideal when I get to heaven maybe kind of deal. That being like Jesus is the normal average run of the mill. All of Christians are like Jesus. What? That can't be. I know. That's impossible. You're dead right. That's, that's radical. You're exactly right. Sure. Well, how was Jesus? Let's get down to it. How was Jesus? In Acts chapter 4, it's interesting that, uh, that uh, Luke, in writing about this, he says what happened was that, uh, that the, uh, Herod came along and he represented, of course, all the kings. And Pilate, he represented all the rulers. So here you got all the kings, all the rulers represented in Herod and Pilate. And oh, then over here you got the Israelites. So you got all the Jews. And over here you got all the Gentiles. Well, that's about everybody. I know. So you got all the kings, all the rulers, all the, all the Jews, and all the Gentiles, and they all came together and crucified Jesus. So every single individual in the world was the enemy of Jesus. And he says, they all came together, and as they all came together, they all shook their fists, they all yelled at him, they all nailed him, they all participated with ha the hammer, nailing, put the nail in his hand. They all, went, all were involved in that. And what, how did Jesus respond to his enemies? Oh, you know. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Well, is that the standard? That's his example, right? Where is there room in there for hate? Where is there room in there for, I despise you? Where is there room in that for grudge, bitterness, You don't see it in the example, right? If you were going to pick out one group that was especially nasty, mean, uh, 
adversaries of Jesus, it would be the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. They were at him all the time. Just meaner than snakes. While Jesus was doing miracles, you know where they were? They were in a conference room around an oak table plotting how they were going to kill him. That was their relationship. Every time he said A, they said B. If he'd say B, they'd say A. It was just, they were just, it was just all the time. So you know what Jesus did? In Matthew 23, he gave his last preached message. And it's called the seven woes of the Pharisees. And he tears into them. I mean, he goes after it. He calls them hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, blind leading the blind. He, he just goes into them. Now, as you begin to get into that message that he preached in Matthew 23, you would think that his face was red, his eyes were bulged out, he was wagging his finger in their face saying, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. But when you really get into the whole, the whole chapter, because the whole chapter is his message, when you get into the whole chapter, you know what you find out? That isn't the way it was. The scribes and Pharisees weren't even there. So he wasn't getting them or getting at them or yelling at them. They weren't even there. And then as you get further in the message, you know what you find out? That he was weeping while he said all of this. And if you look at your notes, you'll find out that he was literally saying in Matthew 23, 37, Oh, Jerusalem! Weeping over the Pharisees. Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. But you were not willing. So how did he feel about the worst group that was at his throat all the time and were responsible for his crucifixion? He was weeping over them saying, Oh, guys, guys. I would have been your best friend if you'd have let me in. I would have helped you at the depth of your heart if you'd... So if you want to say, well, what's the content of loving your enemies? It's Jesus. And what was Jesus all about? Where's the hate in him? Where's the bitterness in him? Where did he? They've drunk a prostitute to him, man. Dropped her in his feet. They all had stones. We'll fix her. Jesus didn't have a stone. Jesus never threw stones. Well, is that the example? Yeah. I'm supposed to live that way? Well, yeah. Not only are you supposed to, you can. You're kidding me. That's impossible. You can't love everybody. I know. Some people make me mad. I got it. I just look at them and I don't like them. You're one of them. Wow. I know. I know. I know all of that. Well, that's like asking a four-year-old to be a third. I know. That's like asking a dog not to bark. I got it. Come on, man. Like, oh. Which proves his point, right? You're helpless. You haven't got a shot at this. This is not, well, I'll pull myself up by my... No, you won't. Your bootstraps are so far down you can't get a hold of them. You have not got a shot at this. Outside of. 
embrace your helplessness. And in embracing the helplessness, living within the helplessness, he will come. He will come. Wouldn't it, do you think it's possible that an individual can literally have the very essence of the nature and heart of God invade his flesh and get at the core of his system and begin to do something through him that literally is exactly like Jesus? Is that what Jesus was all about? So what are you trying to get done, Manly? Not a thing. You want me to love everybody? Well, you can't. So what's this all about then? This is all about your helplessness and literally being embraced by his nature and you and Jesus coming together in this intimacy that will allow him to put you on a plane that's like Jesus. Which brings us to the second idea that, of course, is in the passage. It's engagement. If this is absolutely impossible, if I can't pos- if this is so radical that it's off the wall and cannot be done, then I'm embracing my helplessness and he comes. So it's an engagement with his personhood that gets this done. Uh, one of my favorite passages is in 1 John. And uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 and verse 16. The reason verse 8, verse 16 are so powerful is because they form bookends for everything he's going to say. So if you can picture it, verse 8 he says, God is love. Verse 16 he says, God is love. And this forms the bookends all, where all the insides of this begin to make sense. So none of this makes any sense unless you got this and this. Because this is the... So God is love. And one of the neat things about God is love, just in language, is God is love. Is is a verb of being. He's not talking about the actions of God. God does lovely things. See, God is not calling you to do lovely things. Well, God wants me to do love actions. No. No. See, it's not about action because God is. So he's not talking about what God does. God does do things, but he's not talking to me here about what God does. He said God is, is, verb of being. And when you have a verb of being, you look at the love. God is love, verb of being. Love is then a predicate noun, subjective complement, predicate adjective, however you want to name it. Which means God and love are the same. So you can flip them. God is love. Love is God. Now that's a little dangerous because we think of love as tickles up and down our spine. We think, oh, I feel good about you. We think of love in those terms. No, love is a person and his name is God. So God is love and love is God. And there is no love outside of the person of God. So even the love that the ungodly man experiences in his life comes from God. So outside of the person of God, there is no love. God is love. So when I come to you and say, love your enemy, you know what I'm really saying? God, your enemy. Be God to your enemy. (laughs) 
So when you're shaking your fist in my face, you know what I'm to do? I'm to God you. <laughs> and what would that be like? Love. Well, that's ridiculous. I'm not God. I know. <laughs> I know. It is ridiculous. It's interesting. In the Bible, there are four Greek words for love. And this is an important study. And again, they're in your notes. Uh, the most basic, fundamental, and a word that you would know is eros. Which is the most fundamental, basic essence of love. Most of us think of it in terms of sexual love. I am sexually attracted to my wife. Lots of other women. But she turned me on. Oh. That's eros. It's not bad. I know. God given. Absolutely. But it's eros. It's fundamental. Then there's love. Which is phileo. Which is our word Philadelphia. Which is the city of brotherly love. Which phileo is what? Loving my brother. Hey I've got friendships. I've got, whoa, people I like. I like you, you like me. Woo, you're my brother. Whoa, we're friends. Whoa, that's phileo. Then there's stergo, which is family love. It's, hey, I've got kids. I've got family. I've got extended family. You're in my family. Therefore, I love you. It's family love. Now, did you notice that every one of these kinds of love, uh, uh, eros, uh, phileo, and stergo, brotherly love, family love, Uh, sexual love, all are within a boundary. If you're outside the boundary, hey, I love everybody in the boundary of friendship. If you're outside my friendship, and Jesus gets into that in this passage in in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if you love those who love you, well, everybody does that. So you're within my boundary. And the boundaries of my love is friendship. And when you're my friend, I love you. When you're not my friend, I don't love you anymore. When you're in my family, I love you. See, all this is boundary language. You're within the boundary of my friendship. You're within the boundary of my family. I love you. When you turn me on physically, whoa, I love you. Now you're 30 pounds overweight. Goodbye. (laughs) You see that? It's a boundary, right? So when they come to talk about God, which one fits? Eros? That doesn't fit God. Which one fits? Stergo? Family stuff? Well, yeah, no, no, well. Phileo? Brother? Yeah, well, kind of, but, yeah. But there's no, that's boundary. So, there's some argument about this. Talk to Wayne about it. He'll straighten you out. There's, there's some argument about this, but one of the scholars that I've gone after says that they were so wanting to describe the love of God they went to the classical Greek and they dug up a word that people seldom used it was never hardly ever used and they gave it new content and it's agape and the majority of times in the scriptures when it talks about God and when it talks here about love your neighbor love your enemy it's agape which is a level of love that is way beyond It's a God love, which means what? No boundary. No boundary, guys. 
That the walls are broken down and the boundaries are gone. And literally I'm in, do you see each one of these words has this boundary and it depends on the individual. See, if I'm, I have brotherly love to you, I love you as long as you're my brother. But then when you don't act like my brother and I'm mad at you, you are now moved. See, your feelings towards me, how you act towards me, how you respond to me determines how I love you. And because we are friends, if we weren't friends, hey, and your friendship with me, how you act towards me, how you treat me, that all determines. See, all of it's about how I see you, hey, in arrows, how, oh, you turn me on. But then again, when you're 30 pounds overweight, hey, you don't turn me on anymore. You got bad breath too. So, whoa. So, hey, it's all gone. And all that has to do with how you treat me. But see, agape is so far beyond that because agape is, has nothing to do with how you treat me. Agape has to do with who God is in his very nature. Do you realize that nothing you've ever done has been ever good enough to make God love you? Well, if that's true, then nothing in you has ever been bad enough to make God not love you. Because this isn't about you at all. This is about him. And he said, I'm going to love you. <laughs> so you're loved whether you want to be or not, which is agape. Which means God has literally extended the boundaries of love from eros, stergo, phileo to everybody. That's God's love. We call that grace, which we sang about. In Romans 5, 5, he began to talk about all this stuff that God has just dumped on us. And then he tells us why. Because the love, listen to this, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Again, 1 John 4.12 says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been completed, perfected in us. So guys, does he, do, you, do, you, do you get it? Nobody's ever seen God. Okay. But God has given himself to us. And we become the demonstration of the God you can't see. Well, that was Jesus. I know. So you're just like him. So what was in Jesus is now in you. And the love that was flowing through Jesus is now flowing through you. So the boundaries are gone. And we love our enemy because we have no boundaries of the love. Because it isn't about them. It's about us and who we are. We can't help ourselves. We are four-year-olds who have become 30. We're dogs that don't bark anymore. I just won the gold medal. <laughs> Isn't that phenomenal? That's the impossibility of this whole picture. Oh, listen to this. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another. What do you mean love one another? How am I going to do that? What's it going to look like? As I have loved you. You also love one another. 
So you have a right to treat everybody just like Jesus treats you. Manly, that's... Isn't going to happen. I know. It's impossible. You're right. Can't pull that off. I'm a four-year-old. I'm helpless. See, we've proved his point. So do you get the biblical picture? That the whole Old Testament sets up a stage whereby we proved ourselves unable helpless, incapable. And along came Jesus and said, hey, new deal, guys. All of this in the Old Testament was just to prove you couldn't do it. Now that you know that, whoo, look out. Here comes the divine. And you and the divine are going to get together. And Jesus was the first man to have this. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, you just continually are striking a blow at our helplessness. At the fact that we are just stomping around acting like we aren't helpless when we really are. And we're constantly living out of ourselves and doing our own thing and making our own plans and pulling it off. When really what you wanted was our surrender, yieldedness. You wanted intimacy with us that you might share your nature with us. God, give us a vision today of what, what could take place in our relationships with each other, in our family. If you feel this, if we felt like you feel, if we had your heart, we grind under hatred. What would happen to that? If you came, could you deliver us from hatred? Could you literally flood our lives and deliver us from bitterness? Could you literally flood our very inner being and change the way we feel about people in our lives? And you know what we do, God? We run away from people. When I don't like them, I stay away from them. So God, we build our little clique. We build our little group. We build our little... And we're not like you. Heads are bowed. Hey, don't go wild on this. Um, walk carefully. What I mean is, would you walk into your life... 
Maybe, maybe it's family. Maybe, I don't know what it would be in your life. But would you just think of one person, just one person that just absolutely, every time you think of their name, it just, something stirs in your inner gut. You just, <clears throat> it just, Obviously, there's been conflict. Obviously, they've done something. Obviously, there's a wall. Obviously, barriers. And you can't help the way you feel. I know. You are who you are. That's right. Would you be open today to God, the Trinity God, invading your flesh and going to the core of your life and giving you his feelings for that person? Would you give up the way you feel? And embrace the way he feels. Would you give up the way you've responded? And embrace the way he responds? Would you risk that? Well, that's radical, I know. Do you know what that could do to your relationships, your family? Your own inner heart? So our altar's open. For a moment in time, where you embrace your helplessness. Oh, I want to do that. And allow him to share who he is in me. These are moments of seeking. Be obedient. Want to join me?